If anyone can rightfully claim the title of the godfather of South African Afrofunk, then it is without question my guest in this episode of From the Heaven. Sipo Mabuse, <laughs> globally known God, as Hotsticks, the godfather of Afrofunk. <laughs> His impressive career spans over 50 years as a hit-making machine with songs like Burnout and Chiquisa and Jive Soweto. He's an exuberant live performer, cultural and social activist, producer, nightclub owner, music industry icon and composer. He's garnered enough awards and accolades to fill a large house. <laughs> <laughs> so if I'm not mistaken by the sands of time, Sipa, I first met you... I think it was around about 76 at a Malombo gig. You remember Philip Tabani and Gabriel? Yes. Um, and then I saw you live at Lucky Michael's Club, the Pelican, in Orlando West. Now, that was a legendary club, wasn't it? One of the naughtiest people, white people. <laughs> you oh. were, yeah, but Benji, you know, you know, with your opening, I think, look, who needs a praise singer if there's Benji in the house? <laughs> you said all these things that I never imagined anybody else would say. But anyway, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Uh, yeah, the Pelican was the place, you know. We hold great memories for that place. And for you to actually have come there was a very big challenge. I don't know how you did it because, mm-hmm. I mean, you came at a time when Soweto was on fire yeah. at the same time because it was 1976. Mm. And we know what happened in 1976. Sure, sure. You see, and, I, was, I was hungry. I mean, I was, I was hungry for the music. Yeah. Uh, that's really where I could hear you jamming with, with you know, with Kipi Moketsi yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and all the guys. All, yeah. all, yeah, all yeah. the guys. And, and all of that was, a, I was Stompy like, Manana, Bani oh. Rachabani, you know, all those great so I was musicians. like a sponge, you know, I'm still yeah, like yeah. a sponge. Yeah, you know? yeah. How did you get the name Hot Sticks? I started as a drummer with the Beatles. Mm. And uh, I used to be inspired and motivated a lot by jazz musicians like Eli Mabuza, Gordon Fandu, David Ramokasi. I mean, the list of Gilbert Matthews, you know, the list of drummers who influenced and, you know, motivated me is endless. Alvin Jones, Ginger Baker, but, you know, yeah. Bernard Paddy, you, you know, you can go on and on and on. So I used to practice a lot, a lot. I used to lock myself in the room and practice even without the band. One day, I think as I was practicing, Elima Buza walks into my studio and he starts sitting on my drum kit. Whew. Those practices, you know, came to be when we had a concert. I think it must have been either in Deepleaf or Ladysmith. And Condry, who was a guitarist then, after I'd played the solo, I think I'd played the solo, of course, the lights went off. Well, the lights went off. I was the only one who could continue playing. I think practice kicked in, and I just continued playing for about 30 minutes. And all I could hear was this applause from, you know, the audience. And when the lights came on, of course, then I stopped. Condry came to me and said, shoo, shoo. You know, typical township patua. Hey, I'm fun. Ha. I, we are she, some fun, which meant, you know, I'm hot. And he said, yo, hot steaks. You know, uh, and uh, well, that's how I got the name. What a wonderful story. I mean, yeah. you mentioned the Beaters. Now, yeah. the Beaters were a seminal band. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, you got together in the late 60s. I think you were all school friends, yes. right? So there was Selby. Selby, uh, Alec. There was Alec and, and Monty. And Monty, yeah. And, yeah, and yourself. And myself, yes. I, I went digging, looking for Beaters material, and I came across a song called Lost Memories. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's very much in the sixties UK beat style, Absolutely. you know, with, with the keyboards and everything. A bit like I don't know if you know a band from Zambia called Witch. The Witch, yes. Yeah. Of so course. it's a bit kind of like it. Who produced? We that? spoke about. We spoke. Yeah. I think I was talking to someone in my chat group. You know, there's a chat group that we have, and someone actually mentioned the Witch from Zambia, and I I actually indicated to that person that well. We saw them, we met them in Zimbabwe then, Rhodesia, of course. And we were probably not unlike similar, we were similar. You know, we were almost the same type of band. Mm. 
I suppose it was more of an instrumental track. Yeah, yeah. Were you predominantly an instrumental band at that no, time? No, no, no. We no. used to, well, remember, when we started, we were actually inspired by the Beatles, right. the Rolling Stones, all those bands of the time. So we would be singing sing songs like bands like the Trogs, and which, which we brought, you know, we mm. brought to Soweto. When the Trogs came to South Africa, then we brought them to come and perform with us in Soweto. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So pop music played a big fingers. role. Eh? I feel it in my toes, you know. <laughs> so pop was a big influence on Absolutely. the Beatles. Absolutely, yes. Know? We modelled ourselves on the Beatles, actually. Okay. Yeah. So the, the band became very popular rather quickly, right? And yeah. you opened for several overseas artists. Do you remember who you opened for? Percy Sledge, Brooke Benton, Wilson Pickett, and uh, many of the guys, I mean, I've just mentioned the Trogs as well, yeah. and there were also local South African white bands when white people were not allowed to come into Soweto, mm, but we right. brought them in. I mean, bands like Freedom's Children right. were there with Julian Laxton and all those guys, and we had Hawk. You, you know, right, I mean, we, we, we opened for a number of bands, and uh, phew. Despite what was happening politically, yeah. music was a lot more integrated then. Uh, it's interesting, and I'd get your opinion on this, but South Africa in, in, in the 70s saw an influx of American black artists. Yes. Soul artists, Percy Sledge, yes. Wilson Pickers, Arthur Connolly, Arthur Connolly yes. uh, and everything. Didn't you find that like a little strange that black Americans would come to South Africa in the midst of of oppression. I mean, I don't think at that time there was at the level of awareness of what was going on in South Africa in terms of how the musicians saw South Africa. Obviously, people had to be educated about the, you know, what was going on in the country. And eventually with the, the, the rise of the black consciousness movement, people were conscientized. People were made aware that no, you cannot come and perform in a country where there is this polarization of race, mm. you know, which uh, South Africa was apartheid-driven, and yet you guys, as black people, you come, your presence in this country would have meant that you are endorsing mm. the mm. system itself. Mm. Those who had come in before were obviously consciously unaware yeah. of what it meant to come to South Africa until, of course, they were educated by the political state. The Beatles themselves yes. had a major sea change when you went to what was then Rhodesia. Yes. And during that country's independence struggle. And yes. It had an effect on the band musically and politically. And politically, yes. What changed for you up there? One of the things that we heard was music that was never exposed to us. You know, we never heard of African music. Because there was, you know, all the other radio stations like LM Radio, SAFM and so on, which essentially played American music. So we were not exposed to African music until we got to that place. And there was a place called Mushandira Pamwe and places like the Skyline Motel where we would go and perform. And suddenly there was all this music from the Congo, music from Ghana. And wow, I think because we were at the level of consciousness and awareness of who we were at that time, we started interacting and engaging with the politics and the understanding of the cultural activism within Zimbabwe. And of course, there was a groundswell of military armed struggle there. That became critical for us to either we embraced what was going on in Zim to come back home to also expand ourselves beyond the pop music that we was doing. At that point, is that where the Beatles made the transition to Harare? Absolutely, because we had been so welcomed by the people and people loved us in Harare. And we even composed music around that. You became the flag bearers of Afrofusion, but it also had in funk and soul and even rock yes. in, in, in that time. Were you being influenced by the Afro bands like Thomas Mafumo, Fedekuri, no, Nigeria, the Funkies. No, no, no. We no. hadn't. We hadn't had people like Thomas Mafumo. We hadn't heard bands that we had was mostly from Congo. Thomas was not really 
um, even uh, Oliver at that time, there was Davila Nguena band, there was uh, uh, OK Success, there were all these other bands, bands like Louis Mshanga's band, and, you know, they were amazing musicians as right. well. Right. And, yes, Fela, of course, we would hear Fela and so on. I don't think that our influence came as a result of that. Most of the influence would have been really politically driven and the level of consciousness that we had. What do we do now? Now that we've had the music and we know what is going on and there's this groundswell at home, do we take our music and integrate it into advancing the struggle and so on? And that's how we got to be. By 76, you had released two albums, the first Harari album and then yes, Rufaro. Rufaro, yes. And those are very different from what had gone down before. Absolutely. Um, and thankfully, they're, they're, they've both been reissued on vinyl. And you were signed at that point, I think, to Rashid Valley's label. Yes. The Sun. I was just about to say so, yeah. You know, which was fiercely independent. Independent label. Independent label. What reaction did you get from the South African community to this radical musical change? And this Amazing. The response, the reaction was just incredible, in particular with the university students. Remember... Most of the students at that time were probably of the same generation as us. Mm. Some of them had gone, we had come from the same high schools that we performed before. So because there was all this radicalism at the universities, the music itself was seen and heard as part of what was to ignite or conscientize society about our Africanness, blackness. In places like Turf Loop. Yes. And, and places we're like that. We were on yeah. fire at that, that mm. particular point. Forte uh, University. Uh, absolutely. From know, a political thought point Ongoye of view. Ongoye University. Yeah. yeah, those universities were like serious bedrocks of political activism. And Harari's music was driven by belief. Yes. In what was happening, oh, what yeah. you were saying absolutely. to people. 76 irreparably changed the political, social, and cultural landscape of South Africa. It was, a, it was a watershed moment. What role do you believe Harari played in that conscientization of young people? Do you think that music changes political systems? Very much so. Very much so. If we look at people like John Lennon with the music he made, we would know how influential the music he made with regards to the war in Vietnam mm. and so on. When we made the kind of music we did, because what was happening at that time is not to believe in ourselves as black people. Once you extract from one's being the belief that you are inferior, it begins with the kind of music you listen to, the kind of books you read, the, the reference to your appearance determines and dictates as to how you advance yourself as a people. I always believed that the music that we made was part of that driven purpose when we used language to conscientize people because we stopped singing in English at the time. You know, because when we started, obviously, most of the music we made was singing. And language is very critical. People underestimate the power of language, how it can influence thinking and belief. This is why you find in Zulus, whatever they, they would do, firstly, it's the language that they advance. So we started singing in African idioms, and people responded to us positively, of course, with Steve Biko, Diro, and all that movement, the black consciousness movement was very much aware of what we were doing. We used language to say we are who we are and nothing is going to change us from that. What many people don't know is that yourself and Harari uh, were deeply involved in the underground struggle. Yes. Uh, not just by writing about what was happening, but also in a political sense, right? Yes. You were contributing that way. I mean, you've been quoted by saying you felt at one stage you were sleeping through a revolution and there was more that you can do. Yeah. That you could do for, Absolutely. for, for the struggle. And that's what happened with Harari. Absolutely, think? because I think that also, like, as I mentioned, you know, the people that I met before, people that we met, the students, the student movement, and of course the groundswell, we were very much aware of what's the winds of change 
as Mel would have said at the time. You know, it was happening in Angola, it was happening in Mozambique, Mozambique yeah. it was happening in Guinea. So it, it happened everywhere. There was liberation, there was freedom. We were the next. And what would be our role as far as cultural activism is concerned? Our role would be to conscientize, to create that awareness around the groundswell of political activism. In 78, on the eve of some dates in America that you were going to do with Brayu, yes, your friend and fellow Harari member Selby Ntuli passed on, uh, <sighs> which must have been a very big blow to you because you had been together since school. Yeah. Harari continued over the years with the revolving door of players. I think everybody passed through Harari at some point. Yeah. Uh, Thelma Sagoni, Kayam Klangu, Doc Kaslani, uh, yes. and, and Opa Sugo, who I worked with in uh, Kabasa. Kabasa, yes. Because we signed yes, Kabasa at Weir. He had just left Harari. He actually was fired. <laughs> he was fired from Harari. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, a lot. you did have a lot of really top top musicians yeah, as, as we, part of Harari. Yeah, Chico, you know, Chico was one of yeah, them. Condry, Condry was Condry in the was band? One of, was one of the band members, and there was Banza Khaswani. Oh, who, who went on with, with Mango. The, with Mango Groove, you know, and, and Banza so all, then played with us at high school. Oh, I didn't know Yeah, that. he played with us at high school. Actually, Banza played with the Beatles. Okay. Yeah, he played with the Beatles, and he was one of the foremost trumpeters, young. And when we backed Brooke Banton and Banza played a trumpet solo, these Americans said, what? <laughs> Where did this boy learn how to play trumpet? Because his tone, his sound was almost exactly what they, they would say. He sounds like Louis Armstrong. Oh, wow. But so, so Harari was like a university Absolutely. for, for, for Absolutely. Music, South African musicians. Uh, well, we were not aware. It was not intentional. Right. It was not intentional. But I think our level of popularity attracted many of the people that would rather be, you know, it's like when you grow up and you're a football star, you look for that team that everybody would love to play The dream for, team. The dream team. Yeah. So Harari was more like that kind of group where every young person who's a performer or an artist would love to be part of the Beatles or Harari. Some of those would have been on a musical level because Harari constantly changed. Yeah. So yeah. you would just update. We update with different and people. And and we called ourselves revolutionaries, evolutionaries, if you may call it. <laughs> You're very prolific, though. I mean, 11 albums from 78 to 86, notable was Heatwave. Yeah. Uh, with its well, big it, it, body. You, you would know that. Yeah. <laughs> you would know that one because uh, it went up to billboard. Absolutely. It went to several international territories. Yes. I went to a party the other night. Everybody there was proving right. Moving, rocking, putting stuff. up in 82 was it but albums seem to have continued with harari after yeah, well, that well you know there was the issue of who owned harari ah. because there was a whole legal battle between uh, myself and alec and eventually of course uh, the choice and the decision was made that i'd remain with the band i think because of the uh, intimate attachment to that band 
necessitated continuation because there was all this sentiment associated with the band Harari. Mm. People loved the mm. name. People loved the band. I mean, at some stage, they said, if you thought of any other band in this country, Harari is a gift from God. I guess that sentiment was quite special for me that I continue. And I had made a promise to Selby, you know, at his funeral where I said, you know, you made fire when it was very cold. And I'd love to keep that fire going. That's wonderful. Yes. So it was running parallel with your solo career, was it? Yes, but for a limited period. For a limited period. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that lengthy solo career because, again, you were being progressive and moving forward and coming up with different sounds. I mean, Burnout (laughs) is still one of the biggest selling songs of all time. I mean, somewhere around half a million copies. It's insane. Probably more than that. Probably more. Because the 500,000 copies were the first three months of the release. Wow. It's still one of the most recognizable riffs in music. Yes. One of the You can hear it anywhere when you go, got it. Yeah. You know, um, I know if I want to make people love me, I just go straight straight to it. <laughs> so if you need to lift the crowd, let's do burnout. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you've probably told the story many times. Um, yeah. How did that song come about? Is it, was it one of those magical, spiritual, organic moments where you sat down and played a riff and went, hey, there's something here. The best hits evolved like that. It's almost like you were in the studio when I did that. (laughs) Because (laughs) you're describing exactly how it happened, you know. And uh, Richard Mitchell, may he so rest in peace, and I, you know, were working on an album. Being the sound technician, the sound engineer he was, co-producer and stuff, he was busy with these, you know, mechanical things. And I decided, no, let me just go and keep myself busy on the piano. And I had brought in a pianist to come and play on that day, you know, on some of the songs. Mm-hmm. He sat across me and as I was playing the riff, I saw his body language, his move. I just felt this thing and I, I thought, Mm-mm, this I'm going to put down before I can forget it. And I called Richard. I said, Rich, can we put this thing down before we forget it? And he said, I could hear what you were doing. So I started playing. And as I was playing, we stopped everything else. We focused on burnout. Ten minutes, the song was done. I even started hearing the melody, which I wrote words for. And I think at the time I was going through an emotional turmoil with the Harari split. I was having this strange relationship with this woman. And I just brought the two together and thought, no, this is not my, this is a very emotional moment for me. Perhaps I should write the song about what was happening to me at that time. Oh, no. 
those are the songs that are really special yeah. when they just come to you. Don't you think that you sort of get a visitation from the muse? Absolutely. You know? I always say to people, burnout for me is more an ancestral gift. Mm. It came through me. Did I write it? Yeah, maybe I was just a conduit to it. The vessel. Yes. Did you think when you finished it and mixed it with Richard and everything, did you think it was going to blow up to the extent that it did? I felt it immediately because the following morning I called Peter Gallo. What an amazing human being. You know, I called Peter Gallo. In fact, I went to his office and I said, I think you must come and listen to this because Peter was like you. He was a record company person. Mm. You know, the generation of record company people who really interacted and loved music mm. with Ivor. Right. And I said to them, please come and listen to what we're doing. Of course, Peter Gallo and Ivor came downtown recording studios. And immediately we started playing that. Peter Gallo said, what? What is this? Peter and Ivor have known how to sell music. They've sold different types of music to the South African community. And Peter Gallo said to me, it's a fantastic track. I think we've got a monster here. Now, there would be a very interesting story about it as well, that, you know, after we recorded it, but Peter says to me, if only you could find an African-sounding instrument, just add it somewhere in the song. So maybe I should say I should have given him royalties <laughs> for the idea. There were xylophones in the studio. I just brought them in. We just played the opening lines. That. Boom. We recorded it. I think first week of the release was 100,000 copies. Your other record company, EMI, decided, no, we want to record this song as well. <laughs> So they tried to use a rule in the a composition, owner's composition. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to use burnout, but they wanted to add something before that so that they can claim royalty. Peter Gallo said to them, well, go ahead. Let's see how much how much you can fight this. And they knew very well that they had no leg to stand on. I mean, Burnout and indeed the other hits like Chive Soweto, yeah. uh, Let's Get It On, Chant to the Marching, Tabu Busu, mm. um, are deeply rooted in the township. I'm amazed with what Tabu Busu has done. Yeah, yeah. I never imagined in any way that it could probably surpass a play beyond Burnout. Has it, it really? More, been, it gets, really? It gets more airplay, of course, in the, you know, the black, mostly radio, black mm-hmm. radio stations. You've never mimicked or copied styles uh, and trends, particularly from the US. Um, you've always walked your own path. How important is it to you as a musician that you draw influences from the community that you live in? Benji, we could say that we learn from other sources. But it is where you come from that determines who you are. Mm. You know, I watched an interview with the vice chancellor of the UJ, you know, before he went to Japan. One of the things he said when he was asked, why did you choose to be a scientist? And he said, you know, I had this teacher. He was a black teacher who influenced my thinking. It is primarily important to be influenced by those who feel and look like you. If I didn't live in Soweto, I'm not sure if I would have been making the kind of music I'm making. It is the environment that influences how I perceive myself as an artist. One of my favorites is uh, Shikisa, yeah, oh. 1987 from the self-titled album. You recorded that in the UK with Martin Russian, who, who, who was a a pop and punk producer, Human League, you know, and, and it was released globally and it was used in the film Throw Mama from the Train with yes. Danny DeVito. That's How did that thing come about? Peter Gallagher again was in the center of everything that was, you know, when they submitted. In fact, it was Ivor because Ivor went to, you know, he always went to Midham, mm. you know, and this time he had invited me to go with him. When we got to Midham, Ivor, of course, uh, pitched 
And suddenly there was all these record companies who were interested in this music. Of course, Virgin was one of them in the UK. And uh, Shigisha, and where they even invited UB40 to do a remix of Shigisha. Shikisha is more than just a track because when I did 4664, I did Jive Soweto in the UK. But when I did Shikisha, the brass guys were just amazed. The horn section was saying, how did you put this together? It is one of the most driving arrangement we've ever had to play for any other musician. Wow. It was a humbling response from the musicians. stories that I, that I tell is, you know, when I used to travel overseas for long periods of time, you know, doing my record company thing, I always had either a tape or dat of South African music. Right. Because when you're on your own in the New York hotel room in the middle of the night. You want you're to feeling, remember home. <laughs> you want to think I'm Shakisa was on there. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> along with, Thank you. Along with other tracks. Talking about concerts for 6664, I want to touch on the legendary concert in the park in 85. You Still regarded as the biggest live concert ever. What are your memories of that day and its effect on culture and on the broader South African youth? What do you remember? It was the first time that white people and black people in South Africa converged into a venue to listen to South African music. Mm. White people had never been exposed to township music. Black people had never been exposed to white music. All of us benefited from that experience. I mean, there was Johnny Clegg, there was... Avoid, Brenda. Avoid, there was me, the Soul Brothers, there were Stimela and Lucky Dube, Harari and I were the headlining act along with uh, Chiluka. Wow. One of the first things that I said when I walked to the stage, it's time that you guys heard what is on the other side of town. Like we brought our own people to hear what is the other side of town. We're going to play township music. The crowd went ballistic. And when we did Jive Soweto, put the house down. That was, that was the moment of South African saying, wow, where have we been all these years? <laughs>
But a year later, in 86, Paul Simon released the Graceland album. Yes. Which drew heavily on South African music. Large parts of it were recorded here, much to the anger, you know, the cultural, of, boy, cultural boycott. Yeah, yeah. What were your thoughts on that? And, and do you believe that art and culture should be weaponized? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Paul did what any right-thinking musician would do because he didn't just come to South Africa and obviously because of the different political persuasions and policies, he consulted more with the progressives because he went to Olive. I think he spoke to Harry Belafonte, say, listen, I want to go to South Africa and work with these musicians. He was made aware of the cultural boycott, but it is important that you engage the ANC. Paul was a very smart person. He was not just another musician. He came to South Africa. I was one of the people that he he engaged. And of course, using all the other musicians and did the music that he did. But it was important to note that he brought in certain very influential musicians on his tour. You you can't fault someone who brings Miriam Makeba on the board, right. Huma Sikela on the board, Stimela, Ladysmith, Black Mamba. So that is power in itself. The cultural boycott, yes, he was aware of, but in terms of what the progressive organizations believed, he was advancing South African music beyond its borders. I think he did. Look where Lady Smith Black Mombasa is. And of course, there's a lot of appreciation for South African music after that. Let's talk about musicians' rights. Back in the early 90s, we had a proactive, although party politicized, union, Musa. Yes. Which folded into the Creative Workers uh, Union of South Africa, and that's been dormant since 2014. Mm-hmm. At the moment, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see an organization that looks after specific rights for musicians anymore. Well, besides the, you know, collecting uh, CMOs. Sure, yes. sure. Musicians should, as they have in other parts of the world, in America and in, in England, should have health care, should have they retirement, should. should have unemployment funding. Don't you think that here we are in 2023, that's something that's badly lacking in this country? I think that stems from bad politics. Mm. I think some of the politics in this country are not consciously aware of what the role of the arts in society are. It's always considered the stepchild of everything that is going on in the country. So it cannot be seen. You know, every time we want to engage politicians, one of the first things they would say is, no, you guys are not united. When you try and unite, they would come to these meetings, they'd talk to us, they'd say, yes, you you must be united. And we are united. Mm. What are you going to do about us being united? How do you help us advance the unity that you are also always advocating? No, nothing. We do not have a voice. But again, I blame ourselves. For, for not being strong enough, outspoken and challenged because we're always going cap in hand to government, give us this, give us that. And yet the power of changing things lies within us. Mm. We have not been in a position where we can say we will advance things like workers. You know, if you look at organizations like Kusatu and Saftu and all these organizations are you know, saying, this is what we want for ourselves. Mm. We have been in a situation where we go with a begging bowl to say, please look after us. Mm. It shouldn't have to be like that. I think it's rather tragic. Yes, it is. We should demand if we pay taxes in this country, which we do, and yet when we want to form a union that will make demands of the things that we think are matters that, you know, South African artists should we're always sidelined, and I don't think it's correct. But yeah. then again, we are responsible for that. We have managed to get people, I mean, uh, people like Monsumi Makhane, who, who really tried to draft an amazing document to try to get the artists to unite against their uh, exploitation and to unite for recognition. 
you know, same as any worker and so on. It's sad because, I mean, as you quite rightly said, you know, workers, general workers have rights, metal workers have rights, farm workers have rights, musicians who are special. Yes, to, domestic to, workers. You know, but musicians are a special breed. I mean, they, they contribute so heavily to culture and to nation building, and yet they are without the tools that other people have. I think it really is very, very sad. Yeah. Over the past couple of years, African music has been gaining in popularity in the US, where artists like Burner Boy mm. are, are making waves. With one or two exceptions like Moonchild Sinelli, um, South Africa seems to have got left behind in terms of being at the front of the wave in America to alert people to African music. Why do you think the Nigerian artists seem to be streets ahead on that level? I mean, we've got forms of music here. I'm a piano. Um, if I understand correctly, and uh, from from what I've seen and what I've heard, I'm a piano is actually making inroads into, well, maybe m- most probably not in the U.S., but certainly in the UK, you know, they, they've been there and there've been programs, you know, about them. I mean, you have Black Coffee who's won sure. awards and you have Lady Smith, Black Mambazo. You, you've had the popular song in Jerusalem. Mm. So yes, probably not the same as the Nigerians because you, one thing that we also need to applaud Nigerians for, a forcefulness. Because they believe in themselves, they believe in everything that they do, even their movies. Mm. They've actually become one of the biggest movie industry in, in, in the world because they are people who believe that their culture, you know, is more important than, and if they can take their music to the rest of the world, then why not? I don't think that we've made enough effort to actually you know, introduce ourselves to the rest of the world the same way as the Nigerians have done. I agree with you on that. And I hope I hope it I hope it changes. I mean there are some people, you know, making moves over there. But I think this country has got so much to offer musically. Yeah. I went to Washington University and I met some of the professors and uh, when I introduced myself as a South African musician, one of these professors says, Wow, you play blues like us and I said to him, you know what? While we can play blues, we have much more than the blues in mm. South Africa. Because human Sikela is just making waves in this. Mary Makeba is, I said, well, that's the kind of people we are. There is so much there. And I was lucky to be. He said, I didn't even think that South Africans have got so much to offer to them. But why are we not hearing you guys? We've got forms of music that are unique to us. Jazz, yes. South African jazz. Yes. Here's a sad state of affairs. Where are the clubs gone? The orbit's gone. You yeah. had Kippies, of course. You ran Kippies. I ran Kippies. Uh, ran oh, Kippies. It was but, one of the great moments for me. Oh, I mean, I loved Kippies. Yeah. I mean, it, it was uh, a haunt of mine. Part of that, don't you think, is the advent of DJ culture. It seems that DJs are the new artists and that audiences would rather groove to the decks than go and see and support live music. It's very unfortunate as well. There is just so much great talent out here. Hmm. Young people have just been sold to listening more to DJs. There are special moments. There are special concerts. For instance, Joy of Jazz is one of those. Hmm. It's done the Cape Town International Jazz Festival. There, there are quite a number of music festivals and so on. But as you rightly said earlier, clubs, venues, where people can always go and listen to music. The unfortunate part about that is that they don't get the kind of support that would actually enable them to sustain beyond just being venues for moment of joy. Do you think that's maybe a byproduct of... The digital age where everything is on the phone and, you you know, you, Absolutely. You, it's music on demand. I hate to be a, a when we, but, you know, we went out and saw musicians in clubs. And then, you know, the branch office down in town, yes. you remember the branch yes. office, or, or as I said, the Pelican. One of the things that's come up in the last year or so is AI, artificial intelligence. 
I still like you, to get to know more about that. <laughs> well, what you know of it, do you, do you think it's a, a threat to musicians? It's a threat for everything. Isn't that scary that I could recreate you? Yeah. I mean, as yes. a musician, I yes. could recreate your voice. Yeah, I know. And your style of playing. You know, you know, I, I, I watched an interview, ABBA, mm. you know, had a concert. Mm. The Avatar concert, yeah. Yes, the Avatar concert. And I thought to myself, whoa. So this is where we're going. Should we be preparing ourselves so that there's a Sipomabusa on stage <laughs> who's sitting and watching himself perform? Or in 50 years' time, we're yes. going to have Sipomabusa on stage in a hologram stroke AI thing doing burnout. Yeah. It is, yeah. It is, it is quite scary. Now, most of us spend our lives trying to escape our school days. But you bucked a trend <laughs> um, and went back to school at the age of 60. Yes. What initiated that? I grew up in an environment where um, education was critical. You know, people that I grew up with, people that I lived with, the people that influenced how we thought of ourselves were driven more by interest in education. And I think that never escaped me. And I had felt that it's another role I could play to motivate young people who are giving up on themselves in terms of education. I should go back to school because I hadn't finished my metric. And I decided I was going to go back and study because if I can say to my children, please get an education, let me set up the example why it is important for me to go back to school. I've always maintained that education is more than just classroom. Education is about power. If you understand your power, it would most definitely, it would not come from material. It would come from knowledge. And that knowledge comes with education. So education is liberation. Then. Liberation, absolutely. Well, that's very inspiring that you did it. Because when I saw that over there, I thought, because yeah, I also don't have a matric, I'm going to go to standard seven. It's something that crosses my mind. Maybe I can fit it into some of my busy schedule. Young people who come to me and say they want to be singers, one of the first things that I would be saying to them, look, with all your talent, go to school, get educated so that you can defend your territory. Some of them come back to me after many years of study and say, thank you because I'm a doctor today. I'm a lawyer, I'm a scientist because you made that choice for us. I said, no, you made the choice. I proposed that would be the best thing that you could do for yourself. What are you up to now? What's the future holding for you? I'm a musician. 
I make music. That's all I, I know. I love reading a lot. You know, I have a library at home. I spend a lot of time reading books, but I also spend time in the studios writing and I also spend time motivating young people on things that I think should be the right paths they should pursue. When you look back on this amazing career, this amazing life of yours, what do you hope that your legacy will be? I have made a contribution to humanity. If I have done that, I have made other people feel good about themselves and be happy. I've inspired and motivated. That for me is very important more than what I had achieved as a musician. Amen to that. Sipo Mabuzi, what an absolute pleasure to have you on From the Hip. You can get all the Sipo's music, both his work with Harari and his solo stuff, on all of the streaming platforms. And if he's playing live in your hood, go and see him. He's still as vibrant as ever. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.